Paul sails for Rome. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. And from there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we'd sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. And when the wind didn't allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved across the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of La Cie. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided we'd sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. And when a gentle south wind began to blow and they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Cowder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they'd run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, and they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail to Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord, of God, whom I belong and... Last night, an angel of of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Let's pray.
Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. Uh, we thank you for your love. Uh, we thank you that uh, you watch over us uh, and take care of us and lead us along uh, all the journeys and the difficulties of life. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would do that uh, throughout the rest of our lives and help as we reflect on what you've done in the life of Paul to see clearly uh, that protection and care that you give to us. I Strengthen our faith, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, sea voyages have always been dangerous. Uh, in his wonderful book on the history of the sextant, uh, it's a riveting read, I highly recommend it. Uh, it is actually surprisingly good, but... Uh, in his book on the history of the sextant, David Barry tells the story of Commodore George Anson's circumnavigation of the world in the 1700s. And from the very outset of that journey, Anson and his fleet were delayed by contrary winds. And when in March 1741 they passed down around the bottom of South America, the situation was dire. They met terrible gales and Barry writes... Men were injured or lost overboard, some lost fingers or toes to frostbite, the ships began to leak heavily, and both sails and rigging were frequently damaged. Typhus and dysentery had already weakened the squadron on the voyage south from Madeira, but scurvy too now began to take its toll. They were so weakened, apparently, that they couldn't throw overboard the bodies of their dead shipmates. Uh, unable in those days as well to determine their positions accurately, they turned north, having sailed for long enough, they thought, to have passed the bottom of South America, but they soon discovered themselves uh, dangerously close to shore and at risk of being swept onto the rocks. Uh, in the aftermath, the ships of the squadron were separated, and then after remaining, uh, the remaining ships rendezvoused at Juan Fernandez off the coast of Chile... They set out across the Pacific on what's described as an agonisingly slow voyage in which one ship had to be abandoned and where eight to ten men were dying every day. When they finally returned to England, of the 1,900 sailors who had departed, only 500 returned. Sea voyages have always been dangerous uh, throughout the history of uh, time. And here in this chapter, the Apostle Paul experiences his own dangerous sea journey. And yet, remarkably, it's a journey in which a single soul, a single life, is uh, not lost. Chapter 27 follows on from the last couple of chapters in which Paul had been arrested. Uh, he'd appealed to Caesar uh, in order to get the gospel to Rome, and in chapters 28 and, uh, 27 and 28, we follow Paul's journey to Rome by sea, and it's nothing if not eventful. Uh, Paul's placed under the command of a Roman centurion by the name of Julian, who over the course of these chapters shows himself to be uh, quite a kind man. Uh, also travelling with uh, Paul is Luke, you can tell that because there's these we passages, we did this, we did that. Paul's the author of Acts and, uh, sorry, Luke is the author of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. The journey begins calmly. Uh, it seems like it's going to be a nice trip, to be honest. Julian the centurion allows Paul time to spend with friends along the way. 
But not long after that, things start to slow down. Uh, I've got a map, actually. Can you put that up, Simon? Uh, Pretty small writing there, but Paul, starting on uh, that side, whatever side that is, uh, down there in Caesarea, and uh, as they head off, they're pushed uh, by the wind behind Cyprus and over the top of Cyprus, uh, and then all that way from Cyprus uh, to Cnidus uh, up there, just on the left of Lycia, they're, they're, facing, they're facing contrary winds, basically, uh, and it's slow and it's tough going. Um, all the way along there. Uh, the wind then forces them south of Crete, so they want, to, want probably to go across the top there uh, at the south of the Aegean Sea. But the wind forces them down, and so in the end they come round the bottom of Crete uh, they, and they port in Fairhaven, and that's when they have that discussion about what they should do, uh, whether they should keep going uh, or not. They, uh, they decide in the end, uh, Paul... They decided in the end to go to Phoenix, or that's where they want to go, uh, because it's a, a better port than Fairhaven. Uh, Fairhaven's exposed. Uh, but it's then when they leave from Fairhaven to go to Phoenix that uh, things really go south, <laughs> literally. Uh, before they set out, Paul warns them uh, about what they're doing, and he says in verse 10, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. Uh, and the centurion doesn't listen. Uh, although he's a kind man, he, he probably, perhaps unsurprisingly, listens to the ship's pilot and the ship's owner rather than Paul, although Paul by this stage is a very seasoned sailor, having spent mo- most of his missionary journey sailing around the Mediterranean. Uh, Luke tells us that the reason Paul didn't want to go was because the weather had already started to become dangerous and it was now after the Day of Atonement. So uh, the Day of Atonement is mentioned not because it's of religious significance, but it's for nautical reasons. The Day of Atonement was uh, toward the end of September or the middle of October and that meant that it was a dangerous time to sail. So any time from about then until... February, March of the next year was considered too dangerous to sail around the Mediterranean. So Paul says, hang on guys, we shouldn't, we shouldn't go any further, it's going to be too hard for us uh, to get there. Uh, but they decide to sail anyway, the moment that the weather kind of looks okay, uh, and then everything gets even worse. So, uh, so I'm just put that back up again. Uh, so they try to get to Phoenix at the very western edge of uh, Crete, but they're pushed south by the wind. They turn south, and it's then they kind of fumble around until they later get to Malta. Uh, and they're just basically freewheeling until, until that happens. Thanks, Simon. Uh, so they try to head west, they go south, uh, they have to give in to the wind, uh, and basically they're pushed wherever the wind and the sea want them to go. They're at risk of losing the lifeboat, so they haul it aboard. That can't have been particularly comfortable. Uh, they're even at risk of losing the ship, so they tie ropes under the hull uh, to keep it together. The next day they start throwing the cargo overboard. Then they start throwing some of the ship's tackle overboard, presumably the bits that they didn't need. But even still, it's a sign of just how desperate the situation was becoming. And after days without sun or stars, they give up 
uh, hope of being saved. And it's at that point, when things are really bleak, when things are really desperate, that Paul stands up and says to the people in verse 21, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself the damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord to whom... Uh, of the <laughs> When Linda was reading this, I went, yeah, totally, I'm with you on that. It's a hard verse to read. <laughs> uh, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand child before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Uh, It's an interesting rescue plan. It's not especially complete in some ways because the plan involves them running aground and losing the ship. Uh, But all of the passengers, despite that, will be saved. And most important of all, uh, Paul will make it to Rome to appear before Caesar. That's really the key goal, actually. That's God's great goal is to get the gospel to Rome through Paul and that's what God is going to achieve. Uh, That's great news, isn't it, that people won't die and that Paul will get to Rome uh, as God intended. But here's the question, I think, which is worth pondering on for a little bit, and that is, why is it all so hard? Why doesn't God simply allow Paul to sail straight there? I mean, God could, right? God's sovereign over over creation. Jesus stood up in the boat and went, be still, and it was. God wants Paul to get to Rome. God wants the gospel to get to Rome. Why doesn't he just get in a ship and turn up at Rome? At the risk of a terrible pun, why can't it all just be smooth sailing? And yet, that's often, I think, the pattern of our lives and our ministry. It's not all easy going. We know what God wants. God wants the gospel to go out. God wants the church to grow. He wants us to grow as individuals. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to follow Jesus wherever Jesus leads us. And yet, that's a difficult journey to go on. Our plans are subject to frustrations, to challenges, to temptations and to changes that we never expected to have to make. We set out with great intentions, but not everything goes to plan. But just because God means us to get somewhere doesn't mean that it will be easy. And nor is it true that just because things are difficult, that God isn't in them. Uh, The 4pm service, I think, is a great example of that. Uh, It's a necessary thing, it's a good thing, it's a right thing to do. It seems that God has led us to this point. It seems that that it's an answer to prayer, uh, to prayers that we've prayed. Uh, And yet, I think this is the hardest start to a year that I've had in the time that I've been here. Uh, probably, Probably the first, this is probably the time that we struggled the most to have leaders for Sunday school say. Steve talked about that before. Uh, We've had trouble before, but not as serious trouble. Um, 
And there have been unrelated challenges, unexpected challenges, things that you just go, what on earth? Where did that come from? Why now? Why not six months later? That would have been much easier. Just because it's hard, it doesn't mean that God is not in it. And just because God is in it doesn't mean that it will be easy. That's true of ministry, that's true of life as well. I can imagine Paul sitting in the boat thinking to himself, wow, (laughs) I wish I just could have got to Rome in one step. Wouldn't that have been more effective? And yet God has other plans. Faced with a crisis, the kind of crisis that Paul faced, I suspect many of us would give up hope. Uh, Like the sailors, we'd stop eating and we'd wait to die. But even with the gruelling detour, Paul trusts that God would do what what he had said he would do. Paul says to the people on the ship, great words, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Or if you like, God said he'll do it and I believe him. Trusting God doesn't mean trusting that everything will work out as you plan, but it often means trusting that even things, even if things go catastrophically, uh, things will still work out for God's glory. Uh, So part of the problem is that we often confuse ends and means. So I trust that God will get me to Rome becomes, I trust that this ship will be safe. Or I trust that God will get the gospel out becomes I trust that God will prosper my ministry uh, and keep it afloat and keep this program running. Or I trust that God will build the church becomes I trust that this church will never fail. But but you see, they're not actually the things, they're, they're actually different, do you see? God's promises are actually bigger than us uh, and they're bigger than us in our lives and our present circumstances. The gospel will get to Rome doesn't mean Paul won't be, you know, flogged and shipwrecked on the way, flogged metaphorically speaking. We have to keep trusting God that even when things don't work out as we expect or how he would have planned, we, still, we have to trust that God is still working and God is still working things out uh, according to his plan, not ours, and for his glory, not our comfort. When catastrophe strikes, we don't need to lose hope because God is bigger than our difficulties and he's always doing above and beyond what we ask or imagine. And thank the Lord for that. Well, in the next part of the chapter, the account of their running aground unfolds. Everything happens just as God had revealed through Paul, and we'll read through some of that now. So let's read from verse 27 of chapter 27. Luke writes, On the 14th night we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. 
Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. They've been uh, in the boat for 14 days. They've been driven by the wind. When suddenly the depth sounding show that the bottom is rising fast, uh, some of the sailors try to get away, pretending to uh, be putting out, lowering the anchors, but uh, actually lowering the lifeboat. And Paul says to them, don't go... Uh, don't do it. They have to listen to what Paul says. They have to be with Paul, to stay with Paul, uh, if they want to be rescued by God. Uh, at that point, Paul decides, somewhat surprisingly, I, ex- I suspect, to most of us, Paul decides that they should sit down and have a meal together. Uh, no one had eaten for days, not because there was no food, apparently, but because they'd been too anxious to eat or too busy keeping the ship afloat. But Paul encourages everyone to eat to regain their strength for what lies ahead. They had to, most of them had to swim to the shore. Uh, and they can't do that if they haven't eaten for 14 days. So Paul takes the bread, he gives thanks to God, and then he passes it out. And it's, I think, a remarkable exercise that Paul uh, goes through here, a remarkable exercise in gratitude and trust. Paul's trust in God is so immense that they're facing being run aground and he can still sit down and eat. And his gratitude to God is so immense that even as he sits to eat, even though the ship is about to be crushed by the sea, he can still thank God for the blessing of food. This is how it would have run if I had have been on the ship instead of Paul. Oh my goodness, we're all going to die. Let's eat. No, we don't have time to eat. (laughs) Don't be an idiot. If we had have eaten, someone might have said, I think we should say grace before we eat. Okay, (laughs) Don't be stupid. We're about to die. We don't have any time to do that. I'm just guessing, but I have a... (laughs) 
I, I think I know that that's what it would have been like. And maybe that's what it would have been like for you as well. And yet, isn't it a remarkable evidence uh, of deep trust in God uh, and of deep thankfulness to God that Paul exhibits here? It's a, it's a sure evidence in our lives of a deep trust in God when in the midst of turmoil we can be both calm and grateful. That doesn't, that's not to say that in a situation like this we don't feel the pressure. Uh, it's not to say that there's no concern about what's going on or that there's no stress. That's... That, That's not the point. But it does mean that in the middle of all that, we can be calm. In the middle of the pressure, in the middle of the the stress of the situation, we can say, no, actually, uh, we can trust God here. I can trust God. We can get on with life. We can eat. We can do the basics. And we can give thanks to God for the small blessings that he gives us in the middle of great trials Uh, and great difficulties. It's such a testimony to the greatness of God when life is falling apart around us and we can stop before a meal and say, thank you for the gift of food. Or when life seems to be beyond your strength uh, to endure, to be able to stop at the end of the day and list through all the good gifts that God has given to you that day. A few months ago, a friend of mine posted an article on the Gospel Coalition about his, uh, the Australian Gospel Coalition, his evening prayers, the prayers that he prays at the end of the day. Uh, And one of the prayers is, Lord, I thank you for all the gifts that you've given to me today, dot, dot, dot. Uh, And I found it so helpful over the last few months at the end of days when I remember to do it is to pray that prayer and to start at the beginning of the day and to think through all the wonderful things that God has given. Breakfast in the morning, lunch, morning tea along the way, sunshine, birds outside, amazing gifts uh, that God gives. And those things are a sign of our deep trust in God. They're also, I think, a remedy sometimes to our lack of trust. Because they remind us that even though there's lots of difficulties that we face, uh, there is still God is still in control. Well, Paul's trust and gratitude is not misplaced. When daylight comes, they see land. The ship runs aground offshore. The soldiers are worried about losing the prisoners. They want to kill the prisoners instead, but they're saved. Uh, by God's hand when the centurion stops the soldiers from carrying through on their plan. They all jump into the sea and they either swim to land or they're swept to shore, floating on the debris from the ship. But the key point is that all of them, every single person on that ship, is brought to shore safely. It's a remarkable rescue. 276 people on board and not a single life lost. It's good for us to be reminded, I think, that God is able to execute such remarkable rescues. It bolsters our trust in God uh, in both good times and bad times. 
we might expect that God could save a few people. Perhaps if you had have asked us, if we were on the ship, how many people would be saved? Uh, perhaps we might have thought that a dozen out of 276 might make it to land safely. Maybe half of the people on the ship would get there on a good day. Uh, and maybe only Paul if things got really desperate. But actually God's able to save every single person on the ship. And not a single person is lost. We often have, I think, such low expectations of God. We try something for God and we expect nothing to happen. We share the gospel with a friend and we expect that it will fall flat. We pray for God to work in someone's life, but we don't actually really hold out any hope that God would do that. But that's all wrong. It's wrong to be so distrusting of God, to have such low expectations of God. Which is not to say that we need to go to the other extreme and blindly expect that everything that we do would succeed, but we should be optimistic that God will be more generous than we ever dared to hope. How many people can God save? God can save more than we can ask or imagine. So God, uh, so God preserves Paul and his travelling companions through that dangerous journey. And despite the loss of the ship, they all end up safe on the island of Malta. And we'll pick up the story uh, there again at the beginning of chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed an unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the, by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the, sm- the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. But though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happened to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> of course. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. Uh, he welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. He could have been on the voyage with uh, uh, Com- Commodore Anson. Uh, Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. The people of Malta welcome Paul and his stranded shipmates, but as they gather around that fire, Paul's bitten by this snake. They expect him to die, but he doesn't. Uh, They think that he must be a terrible criminal. After all, if you'd survived such a terrible shipwreck and then been bitten by a snake, you had to be desperately unlucky, didn't you? Uh, Or not unlucky, uh, a victim of, as they say, the goddess justice. But Paul is neither a criminal nor a god. Uh, He's an evangelist. And his suffering and his rescue are both because he is a witness to the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He's invited to the house of the chief official on the island and through Paul, God heals the man's father. And when everyone else on the island hears about it, they come and are healed by God through Paul as well. Uh, Undoubtedly, Paul didn't just heal the sick. 
he would have explained the gospel, uh, explained who Jesus was, explained how it was and why it was that God was using uh, him to heal them. In that way, I think what seems like a detour actually is a wonderful and unexpected opportunity for the gospel. Paul was headed to Rome, he'd get there in the end. But first God wanted him to get to the people in Malta with the gospel as well. The dangerous sailing conditions, the poor decisions by the ship's pilots look like obstacles, but actually it turns out God is using them to get them to an island that they would never have encountered were it not for those obstacles. What seems like a dangerous detour is an opportunity for the gospel. And of course, Paul was always alert to those opportunities. We've seen that before all the way through Acts. Whenever something like this came up, he took it, he seized it. And we, like Paul, I think, need to be alert to those opportunities which fall out amidst the ruins of our plans and expectations. Our best laid plans to make the gospel known can be sidetracked and often our immediate assumption is that they're being hindered or undermined. But maybe actually God is doing something better than we ever asked or imagined. Perhaps God is opening up another avenue along the way. Perhaps God is doing something we'd never thought of, never expected, never would have planned for, never would have hoped for. The mistake, of course, is to get locked up in prognostication, working out, trying to work out what the future holds, what God is doing, trying to work out whether this is an opportunity or a hindrance. So we meet an obstacle and we think, oh, what's God doing? Should we do this? Should we do that? And instead of just actually getting on and taking the opportunity, like Paul did, uh, we get locked up in wondering what's going on. What we need to do is to seize the day and to get on with it. The day is almost at hand, the New Testament says. That is the day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And what a waste of time it is to think, well, I wonder if this is an opportunity I should take or not. We should take the opportunities for the gospel as they come up and then trust God to do the rest. So you might decide that this year you're going to make a special effort to pray for and share the gospel with one of your colleagues. And then as the year unfolds, as the weeks unfold, you discover that your colleague is not actually that interested. But your neighbour starts asking you questions about, about, uh, about Jesus. They want to know more. Well, don't ignore your neighbour because you're already praying for someone else. Seize the opportunity that God has given you. If you have a great gospel plan and it doesn't work out because something else comes up, then take the something else and see what becomes of it. Yes, we should plan and be proactive in thinking about getting the gospel out, but we should also be reactive and responsive and adapt and change to respond to the unexpected opportunities that God gives us. Well, finally, Paul arrives in Rome. We'll just read that last section from verse 11 of chapter 28. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. 
From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. It's like meeting Strider in the pub uh, on the way from uh, Hobbiton. But uh, three taverns. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged when we got to Rome. Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier to guard him. Well, having set out in uh, September or October sometime, Paul finally arrives in Rome in February or March, about four or five months after he'd originally set out. It was a torturous journey, to say the least, but it was still a journey overseen by God. And Paul gets there in the end. He's welcomed by his fellow Christians, and in Rome, he's allowed a measure of freedom. Once again, Paul, God, I should say, gets Paul where he's going. What God had promised in multiple visions throughout Acts had finally come to pass. Not without obstacles along the way, clearly, not without challenges, but also not without unexpected opportunities. But Paul still made it in the end to Rome. No matter how torturous the journey, God gets us where he means to go. Which is not the same as saying that God gets us where we mean to go, but he gets us where he means for us to go. That's true in evangelism. God will do whatever it takes to get the gospel out. He'll use us and others in new ways, in unexpected ways. He'll take us through unexpected and gruelling challenges and he'll provide unexpected and wonderful opportunities that we never imagined. But he'll get the gospel out. And actually, getting the gospel out is more important than your life or my life. And thank God for that. It's also true of life and eternity. That Paul had even embarked on this dangerous journey to Rome was because he knew that his life was worth nothing to him if only he would finish the task that God had given to him. He'd embarked on the dangerous journey because he knew that his life and his eternal future lay in the hands of God. You wouldn't do it otherwise, would you? If, 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 your, if your life wasn't in the hands of God, you'd go, you know what, God? I'm staying in Caesarea. But because his life, his eternal destiny was in the hands of God, Paul could face anything in his pursuit of getting the gospel out there. His life is in the hands of God and there are no better hands for our lives to be in than God's hands. Better to be suffering for the gospel in God's hands than not suffering for the gospel and not being in God's hands. doesn't matter what we face, if we face an early and unexpected death or if we face challenges that seem beyond our power, God is in control. He'll get us to the end. He'll raise us with Christ just as he promised. 
or in the words of Paul, I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we have faith in you that everything will happen just as you have told us. Lord, we trust that we're safe in your hands. Safe in your hands when life goes awry. Safe in your hands when our best laid plans come to ruin. Safe in your hands when death knocks at the door. Safe in your hands when the politics of the world and of nations degenerates. Safe in your hands as war breaks out. Safe in your hands as the fabric of society erodes. Safe in your hands as we seek to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Safe in your hands as we walk the painful road, the narrow way, carrying a cross. Lord, help us to trust in you, to be calm and to be grateful for the many good and precious gifts that you give to us. And help us to live a life as Paul lived and as Christ before him lived of serving the lost and of making the good news of Jesus Christ known in all the world. Protect us and guide us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.